electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. I got a little more than 30 minutes away now from Fed Chair Jay Powell at the Washington Economic Club. Remarks that are sure to move markets one way or the other. And we're going to walk you right up to that event with the Investment Committee today. Joining me for the hour, Liz Young, Stephen Weiss, Jenny Harrington, Josh Brown, and of course, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is with us too. Let's show you what the markets are doing right now in this wait for Powell. The Dow's down by 66, S&P NAS are positive. You do have the 10-year note yield at 364. All right, Mr. Leisman, I begin with you. Which Powell shows up today, okay, the hawk or the dove? Because last week it was the dove who apparently showed up, or at least that's how the market took it. So what happens today after the jobs report on Friday? So I don't think Powell was all that dovish last week. I want to just push back a little bit on that. I think you're absolutely right. The market took it as very dovish. Uh, and he did use the term disinflation, causing the two-year to decline. Well, he used it like 15 times. Right, but let, let's look at what happened after the jobs report, okay? Fed didn't say nothing. Mm. What did the market do? The market went and tightened itself, and it tightened dramatically. The market took, I don't know, mother may I, like eight giant steps towards the, towards the Fed. And the Fed didn't say anything. Now, it took a few more steps after there has been some Fed talk recently. But take a look at the two-year from Wednesday to today. Straight, down, flat, up, and up again. Well, you said, and that's really the story. You said moments ago before we actually came on the air, peak Fed funds yes. now at 515, Thank you more for or reminding less, me of that. More or less. More, right. So, so you're going to ask me the question, what does Powell have to do today? Nothing. Not that much because the market's doing it for him, you know? Um, what are that sisters doing it for themselves? That's the same thing that's happening right now is um, somebody's laughing, at least. Eddie. So so maybe even at home they're laughing. But here's the thing. Um, the, the Fed laid out what its reaction function is. The market took the data, input it to the reaction function and spit back this 515 or 514 funds rate, peak funds rate. And has really, if you look at the Fed market cap, we've been talking a lot about that. It was three quarters of a point. Market was dialing all these rate cuts. Almost all gone. 30 basis points now separates. That was before the jobs report, 80 basis points for the year-end forecast. Now it's a quarter point plus or minus, which, by the way, is well within tolerance because when the Fed does a rate hike, it tweaks at the end of it. So we're sort of in line now. Powell could come forward and say, you know what, this makes me think we need to do a little bit more. And when I say this, I mean the jobs report. But I don't think he needs to do a whole lot. But if, if he is about to do that, and as we said, about 30 minutes' time, the market seems to be okay with that. Like the markets and the base case, I would guess, is a more hawkish Fed chair based on the jobs report. The market knows that and the market seems to be okay with that. He said our work is not even close to being done or whatever. Like this is all year. 
But the volatility of rates is not going to be what the volatility of rates was last year. And that's the problem for the markets is the uncertainty, the jarring, very quick moves in both directions, the, the rapid change in rhetoric from one speech to the next. That's what stocks have a problem with. Stocks don't necessarily have a problem with a 4 or a 5% rate and how long it takes to get there, et cetera. We can, we can kind of handle that. And all the evidence you need is how we reacted to uh, the jobs report. Let's look at the one-year Treasury up 23 basis points since February 1st. Very manageable, well within the range of where it has been. Uh, the two-year went from 4-spot-1 to 4-spot-4-4%. That happened in two days. It's a 34-basis point move. Fairly notable, but again, contained within that expected range. The dollar, back up 2%. It was down 3%. Uh, the low of the year was February 1st, very quickly took back two of those percentage points, again, within the expected range. You have a VIX that's normalizing back at 20. It hit 17 uh, and a half, which obviously is abnormally low for the last year or two from what we've seen. Um, and then just let's finish up with earnings. This is important. 50% of S&P 500 companies have reported. If you take the decline and extrapolate that out for the rest of the index, which I think is reasonable, that's negative 5.3% year-over-year earnings growth, um, about in line with what was expected the, the first time we've had a negative year-over-year quarter. Uh, you have to go back to Q3 of 2020. So it's been a while, but again, well-telegraphed. So I think that's kind of where we are. We're going to see rates pop up a little bit. We're going to see the VIX pop up a little bit. We'll see the dollar regain a little bit of strength. And then we'll look at stocks and see if they still have their bearings. We don't need another 10% rally in the S&P. What we really need, Judge, is a little bit of stability now that we're coming through earnings season. So are we going to find that stability? We have. Jenny? We have. Well, you know, oh, well, that's right. well let's, let, let's, so far. Let, let's no, discuss whether we think we can maintain it. Mm. Okay, okay, good point. Because I think, I think we... that's, that's what happens today. Does today destabilize what Josh was talking about, or does it just give us reason to continue where we are? I think we've actually been, and this is going to be controversial, but I think we've actually been very stable. You know for how long? Since last June. Because what I said for over and over last year was, I bet if from June we span out 12 months, 18 months, we're going to be ultimately range-bound. If you look back at this market, since it bottomed in June of 2022, it's been a pretty tight range. And if we take all this... If this, this is stability, give me a boat in eight-foot okay, seas. No, no, no. Relative, that's going to well, be more stable than this. But Jenny's point I'm is sorry, relative, relative, to to, relative to where the market was, right? You had incredible volatility within the bond market. You, you don't have that. 25 right? basis point swings in the two years. But let me that's zoom more out more stable on this. than sorry. what had happened before. Okay, I'd rather okay. be on the seat. So, so Josh said something, which was the Fed's work isn't even close to done. Guess what? The Fed's work is never done. It'll never be done. They're always going to be working hard. We, he also said the stocks have a problem with what the Fed's doing. They do and they don't. Where are we? We were down 18% last year. We're up 7% this year. So in the past 13 months, 13 months in a week, market's down 12%. That follows a year that was up 30% in 2021, up 18% in 2022. If you zoom out, I'm going to say the, the, the stock, like the stock market's shockingly stable. To only be down 12%, and I know you're thinking about bonds, Steve, right? And those are more volatile. But I'm going to say, too, if you bought a bond three years ago and you locked in a 1.5% yield to maturity and it was maturing in three years, guess what you got? You got your 1.5%. So, so it depends on the perspective that well, you're looking I think at. Well, I think, I think, honestly, the, the, the more important perspective is not how much we're only down. 
it is, Steve Weiss, the fact that we're 18 percent off of the low. Mm -hmm. And that is the perspective, I think, that matters more because now we have to decide whether, A, that's valid, whether we think we're going to, you know, reverse some of that or we can keep building, as some are calling the, the low in October, the low, and that we've started a new bull market. Well, basically, my, my headline is the market's detached from reality. So while, as Josh pointed out, that earnings were down 5%, and that's not bad, uh, you know, you're still in early innings of what the Fed's moves, the Fed tightening policy, are going to do to the economy. We'll feel that in the second half. Now, people tend to, the market, rather, tends to focus on the silver lining in everything that comes up. I've said this repeatedly. You know, give them an opening, they're going to take it, and it's going to go higher. I mean, I didn't perceive, uh, you know, Powell as being dovish. I perceived him as saying, you know, a factual recitation of what's happened, which is that, yes, inflation is peaked, but it's a still a long way to go. So, look, it's not to me to try to, to enforce my views on the market. Who the hell am I? I mean, if Powell can't do it, well, Kashkari can't do it. I'm not going to do it. So, so for my seat, I have to determine, is there opportunity to make money in this market going forward? And I believe there is. And that will see the second half maybe more of a come-to-Jesus moment for the market. Because you don't see, typically, expanding multiples in, a, in an environment where the Fed is, still has its foot in the pedal. You see multiple expansion on troth earnings, but my views were not near troth. And... One more point, Scott. We keep talking about the market. Well, let me just give you some statistics. Despite the 124% move, and this is as of last week in Netflix, it's still 90% off its high. Shopify, 250% off its high. So, yes, so the market's been stable, but that doesn't belie what's going on underneath the market. It can't be 250% off your high. <laughs> Josh and I just looked well, at each other. Well, I'm giving you as of last week. No, it can't I, no, I, I know. I'm talking about. I'm, I'm sorry. It not to I, Scott, Scott. I mean, Josh, you're absolutely right. You're sorry. absolutely right. It's not negative. I meant it's got to go up another 250% Agreed. to get to its prior high. Thank you for correcting that. All right. That. Maybe you should give up given the statistics. I want to see if Jenny was awake. Story. That's the moral of this story. So, Liz, it's, it's good to have you with us today, too. You know, Steve mentioned at the top of the program, you know, it. Powell's people, so to speak, are, are the ones now doing the talking before we hear from him in 20 plus minutes or so. And Kashkari was the latest today on this very network who made the point, at least in his mind, that, that there's been no progress made uh, to this point. Listen to what he said. We can talk about it on the other side of that. We've seen no progress so far, virtually no progress in core services X housing, and that's very tied to the labor market. And so we slice this all different ways to try to give us information about where inflation is headed. I'm not seeing that we've made enough progress yet to declare victory. Well, what do you make of that? Uh, a couple of things. So first of all, what I think we heard from Powell last week was that he's happy that inflation is moving in the right direction, and he wanted to acknowledge that so that it looks like he's paying attention, but that there's still this chance it gets stuck at a certain level or it gets stuck because of services inflation and their job isn't done. What I'm hearing from Kashkari is that, there, yes, there's been some movement in other parts of inflation, and actually this goes back almost to Jenny's point. The equity market is stable because I think the equity market is expecting that inflation continues to go down in this straight line until we get to target and we all live happily ever after. And that's just not 
the reality of how this is probably going to shake out. And if we have an equity market that's down only 10, 10 to 12 percent from highs, that means it's baking in a regular garden variety correction that we have in any normal year. This has not been a normal year. So I think the equity market got ahead of itself. It got ahead of rates and how inflation is probably going to move for the next six to 12 months. And there are members on the Fed, which they're probably going to reiterate all week, who believe that they're going to keep going, if not continue to go too far, until they really feel satisfied that all elements of inflation have been affected. And I absolutely agree with him. There are a lot of elements out there that have not been affected yet. I think we're going to get stuck or even pop back up in CPI in the months to come. Steve, is, is Kashkari out of touch with the reality of, of where we are, or is the market out of touch with the reality of what's still to happen from the Fed? Huh. Um, I don't think Neil is out of touch. Neil has been a person, I don't call him a hawk. He's hawkish now. He had been Well, he's pretty before. dovish, generally speaking, until this whole thing until happened. Until this whole thing happened. And now he's hardcore he's the a other weather, way. He's a weather vane. I, I'm afraid the Fed may be a little out of touch with the inflation dynamic. I, I don't, I am not. Well, that's my point. But by, by, by asking you whether he's out of touch, their, it is, is the Fed I, out I'm of touch. I'm not confident in their understanding of what's happening in the economy right now. Really? I, I'm just not. Um, that's, a, that's a huge statement for somebody like you to make. I, I, I feel like there's stuff going on in the economy that has defied prior analogs and that we're not incorporating. Like, like, I'm in the middle of this big study right now, Scott, that's looking at industries that are underemployed and industries that are overemployed. The, I, I'll just give you the number here. We, we're, we're, we're still working on this data here. But right now, there are... 400,000 nurses that sh that are not the number of nurses in the country at 3. Point, at 3 million is 3.4 million is, is 400,000 below where it should be. We need 400,000 more workers just to get back to the pre-pandemic trend. There are all kinds of shifts that need to go around. I am not sure I do not buy this idea that the labor market is the source of this inflation problem. The Fed believes it is. That's okay, so it goes back. Hold on, hang on, hang yeah. on, hang on, hang on. I'll, I'll get you right there. That goes I'm right ready back to, to the. Reveal this thing, but me, me and my producer Betsy Springer are going through every single major job category, and we're looking at this. What everybody calls the Great Resignation is really this Great Reshuffle. Doesn't this because, go right to your question to yeah. Powell at the news conference? I, doesn't I, it? I, I am. I do not remain. I am not confident this morning that at any have not been confident that the Fed really understands this inflation dynamic that is in place right now. We've lost workers. We've lost uh, retirees. We have a, a hole in terms of the legal immigrants led into this country. We are in need of finding a new equilibrium level. On top of that, there has been an enormous productivity surge in this country that nobody has taken note of. We are at the productivity level, if you take the index, that we should be at if we had normal pre-pandemic growth in 2026. We fired a lot of or got rid of a lot of unproductive or less productive workers. And we're, we're at this place right now, Scott, that nobody, this untold or unheralded productivity story yeah. is disinflationary. I'm just not sure the Fed is incorporating so, that. So your, your point is well taken. And uh, two years ago, Charlie Munger said, if you're not confused, then you have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> so there are a lot of once-in-a-lifetime things taking place all at once. Exactly. And, 
there's this secular demographic thing that overlays Huge. the whole thing. And right. that's why the labor for force participation rate, et cetera, is what it is. That's why people aren't coming back, no matter how high the wages are. A lot of things are broken, and, and we acknowledge that. Um, but the Fed seems to be more focused uh, on wages than the number of people employed. And here's why I think that's the right strategy. We actually got wage growth finally cooling off. It's not in decline. It's just cooling off. And the reason that's important is if we're just counting how many people got jobs, understand the dynamic at play. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they get rid of people who are making three to six hundred thousand dollars a year. Those each count as one job. And then all of a sudden we see all this hiring in warehouses. Those count as one job. But those people are making fifteen dollars an hour. It's not all the same thing. We happen to have job losses, finally, I don't mean that like, yay, I mean that like that's what the Fed is looking for. We finally have that amongst the employers paying the most amount of money to the people that they're laying off, and those people are being replaced by lower income workers. It's not all one thing, and I sure. think because of that, if we focus on wages, the Fed is getting its way in the labor but market. Here's the it's problem. just not on the okay. surface. Here's the problem. Steve Weiss, if if you take what Leisman said, okay, this sort of bombshell like statement of I don't trust that the Fed knows what's really going on here as it as it relates to in, inflation. And then you take what Kashkari said this morning on CNBC. That's that's the fear that then, okay, leave it up to them and they're going to drive the thing right into a brick wall because they don't they don't get it. They don't get it. And they keep talking like, well, we're going to go to 5.4 percent and we're going to keep it there for a while. That's the equivalent of driving it into a brick wall, the car, if you believe Leisman. Well, um, I, I think Steve does great work. I'm wonky myself. I like looking at all the data as Josh does, as Jenny, as everybody. But guess what? The market doesn't care about that. So I could spend time asking that, answering that question. It doesn't matter. No matter what Powell says today, the market may have a knee-jerk reaction down lower. But guess what? It's going to rally again because the market's ignorant of actually what's going on. So what's at stake? You have to look at what's at stake. And what's at stake is already too high inflation, not already, you know, consistently high inflation. And you know what destroys economies on a long-term basis? You know what destroys countries and democracies is persistently high inflation. Right, right. But it's coming Maybe down. Maybe it's 20 percent, not 6 percent. It's coming down, though. It's coming down, but still it's nowhere near. So what's the biggest mistake the Fed could make? The biggest mistake the Fed can make is pausing and not sticking to their game plan. So I believe they will keep going and that you will see restrictive, which going back to yesteryear was 5% and above. And we're but not there yet. If it's you still take Scott's, too easy. If you Look take at Scott's, where the bonds are. If you take Credit Scott's, is still too easy. Take Scott's interpretation of what I'm saying here. Let me give you one fact. We went down unemployment from 3.8 to 3.6% in 2022. The employment cost index went down mm -hmm. from 1.4 to 1%. So it was the opposite of the inflation dynamic that the Fed has told us is at work. Unemployment rate went down. Employment costs went down. Wages in the last swing went down. Employment went up by 517,000. Maybe because of the effect that Josh talked about, the replacement of higher paid with lower paid workers. The point is that I do not see in the wage story driving the inflation story. And so, therefore, you may have to at times drive the economy into a brick wall. I'm afraid it may not be necessary this time. But, 
But you drive it. But, it, but they me, seem intent on almost that. doing that. Yeah. Right. That's yes. the greatest well, fear for. I, I don't think that's the case. Why? How do you, how do you I, I suggest that? Uh, Why? What leads you to believe a, that a it's brick not? Wall is, what leads you to believe it's because not? Because a brick wall is off. A brick wall is awfully far away. You know, we're sitting on the East Coast. That brick wall is not even in China. It's not even in California. It's in China. That's how far away it is. So they've got plenty of time. The economy's been extraordinarily resilient. How do you know resilient. that? How do you know that? You're the, one who, you're the one who says, well, what they've done hasn't even showed, showed up yet in, in the market. So how do you no, know? I said not. I, I, that's not what I said. What it I is. said, the full impact. Uh, no, it's not, Scott. I said the full impact of what they've done has not shown up yet. Of course, some of it's shown up. You can't go from zero to where they are now and not see any impact. So why That's do you ludicrous. keep arguing that they I need to do thought, a lot more if, if the full impact hasn't been felt yet? I don't understand that. If it, okay, if let it me ask you this. If it hasn't been felt how yet, much, how, how much do we know? You, Scott, l- let, me, let me ask you this. Where's go. inflation today? Steve. Where's inflation today? It's probably, where's, it's, where's the it's, inflation it, target? It's probably lower you think they than what the Fed actually keep thinks going it is. Down to 2%? It, it, it's say not it's at 2%. Three month annualized PCE is 2%. Exactly, it's not 2%. It is 2%. If you look at three month annualized rate, three month annualized PCE, Leesman says, is now, 2%. Now, Kashkari dismissed that, said you can't look at uh, is a lot of volatility to that, except for it's been coming down for six months in a row. While the job market has been ridiculous. Liz, Liz, is the greatest risk at this point just the mere question of is the Fed going to just overdo it? Is it going to drive the car into the proverbial brick wall, crash the economy, crash the stock market? I mean, that's a risk. I actually think the biggest risk for markets and for all of us is that we don't get an answer to this before the end of the year and we just sort of (laughs) muddle through it and go sideways and we're not sure if we're in a recession or not. So there's a there's a lot of and I've used this point a few times over the last couple of weeks. There's a lot of bubble wrap around parts of the economy. But the signals that we're getting, I would be shocked if the bond market was sending signals that just weren't correct. I'd be shocked if these yield curve inversions came out to mean nothing. I'd be shocked if it meant nothing that we have a two year treasury that's now below the Fed funds rate for two meetings in a row. Usually when you see spreads like that, you see a recession afterwards. Also, the unemployment rate hits lows right before it spikes up and hits highs in a recession. So a lot of this stuff, although, yes, this time is different for a lot of different reasons, and it has been an incredibly confusing 24 months. But a lot of this stuff and the signals that we're seeing in some of those traditional places, we can't ignore them. And I still think that there's a chance whether they get to a sufficiently restrictive level, whatever they define that as or not, there's still a chance that the economy ends up slowing down enough to be in a recession. I think the argument is really how bad of a recession does it have to be, right? Maybe it doesn't have to be a brick wall. Maybe it's a softer wall and the car protected us enough, but it's enough that it gets us back in balance. Well, and I think this labor market focus is important. He's going to shift from talking so much about inflation because mm-hmm. it feels like that job is working to the labor market where things are overheated. And he's going to give us the reasons for that. We're now going to talk about the other part of the mandate, I yeah. think, for the rest of this. And he, But if he does that, he's only going to drive for further distance away from, you know, Leesman's belief that they actually know what they're doing uh, when it comes to all of that. To the soft landing idea and the jobs report and the impact on all that, Jenny, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic, we mentioned this in overtime, job growth pours cold water on soft landing. That's, that's what he said. Mm. Why? Because the Fed is going to look at that 
and think that they have to keep pounding it and pounding it and pounding it, and they're going to drive the, the car into the wall, and that's going to kill your soft landing Goldilocks narrative. See, I really disagree with that because, first of all, the 517,000 jobs, first of all, I don't even know if that's going to be real. And it was such an anomaly number that I think that there's a high chance that it gets revised and it's not actually that high. But when you say we don't have it, we're, we're not going to have a soft landing because of that, I would say 517,000, if it's right, says we're in the middle of a soft landing. And what do we see Powell doing? We see him already backing off. It's going to be 25 basis points. What's the next one estimated? It'd be 18 basis points, but it's probably going to be 25. So we've already seen the majority of the work done. I think Steve Voice is right. I think that wall is very, very far away. And things like the fact that there's still enormous job growth and that there's decent wage, um, wage growth, which is yeah. cooling but better, like all of these things are literally the makings of a soft landing, which is none of us are distressed. The market's not down that much. Ch- uh, China reopening has, big, global has huge ramifications for the S&P 500, mm-hmm. given the percentage of earnings and revenue and future earnings and revenue expected but will wanna, be coming from there, yeah. more so than Main Street, the United States. But I want to say one more thing, too. Sorry, I hear you, but I, I know I'm going to run out of time. But when Liz says the yield curve, she'd be surprised if the yield curve doesn't predict something. We have to remember that we're in a, we're in a very anticipatory environment right now. And maybe that's why it's so confusing. But it gets into Ed Yardeni's, this will be the most anticipated response session, the most anticipated this, the most anticipated that. Well, maybe that inverted yield curve predicted a down 26% market. And maybe a lot of that pain has already happened. And we've already seen a lot. We're already predicting this. And we all need to realize, like, this isn't our parents' market. It's not even the same market of 10 years ago. The information out there is so enormous that we're predicting things and making things happen in a much more quick, anticipatory fashion than we ever did in the okay, past. Okay, so let, let's just uh, let's touch the market one more time, but we'll take a quick break. Leesman, thank you very much uh, for being here. You've got uh, a speech to watch and some Q&A to pay attention to, and uh, we may drag you back on. And some thinking to do about this whole, I think, I applaud you, Scott, for going after it. I don't think we solved it, but with the great well, brains I, around the table here. We're I, a little bit I, I closer appreciate you being here than we were perhaps at 12 o'clock. We, we do expect <laughs> to see uh, the Fed chair in about five minutes' time, probably hear from him a, a few moments after 12.30 Eastern time. But just to get you caught up, I mean, the market's sliding a little bit uh, as we're having this conversation here. There's the room, Washington Economic Club, uh, down in the nation's capital. David Rubenstein's going to interview uh, the Fed chair coming up in uh, remarks that we can uh, expect are going to move the market one way or the other. Be kind of surprising. And I'm talking about bond market, stock market and everything else. We'll be right back after this quick break. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Uh, there's the room, Washington, D.C., the uh, Economic Club of Washington, waiting on the Fed chair. He's going to uh, be asked questions by David Rubenstein, a Q&A that is uh, certain to be watched closely by the markets. And uh, we will watch that uh, as soon as we do see the Fed chair emerge there. We think it will happen. We'll actually hear from him about 1240. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll watch that. And while we wait, Steve Weiss, you bought Activision this morning, right? I did. I did. Uh, frankly, I was hoping for them to, uh, to have a big miss and I can get it cheaper. Uh, but look, I, I think that right now the stock's keeping some investors at bay because of what's going on with the FTC, which is against the merger. Uh, they're against all mergers. I mean, Lena Khan has proved to be a true socialist. So any merger that comes along, big or small, is going to get uh, the you know, the kibosh from the FTC. But as we saw with Meta, this gave me some encouragement that they won their suit against the FTC and the FTC is not appealing it. So then today, and I paid up a little for it, not the high of the day. Um, then when I take a look at the company that I just believe that they're going to continue to execute, they've got religion now. And so whether the Microsoft merger happens or not at 95 bucks, um, I think there's value in the share. So you don't care whether the, the deal happens or not? I mean, it's 20 bucks below the, yeah, the I, deal price. I mean, price. if the deal, if, if, right. Well, I, I think there's more than this deal at stake. And the basis of the deal is that they're afraid that, is that what you're seeing Google and the others say is that, hey, their console, nobody's going to get in their console. Well, Microsoft said that's not true, number one. Number two, consoles are going away. I mean, all it's, if you heard Bobby talk today, it's about the chips. So any device is going to be your console effectively, number one. Number two, if the deal does go away, then the stock declines, which is why it's a small position now. And I'll take the opportunity to buy more if that happens. OK, um, you know, we're going to get Uber earnings tomorrow morning. Um, and I heard Josh make a comment when you walked up on the set today. You said it's the highest conviction thing you me? have. We weren't even on the air. I don't, that's what happens here, uh, though. The secret is out. Right. I, listen, I, I you said it's the highest conviction thing you have. Yeah, it is. I, this is the one that I think is the biggest mismatch between where the street has it and what its potential could be, not 10 years from now, but like in the next two years. Really quickly, the numbers here. In 2021, the company lost money on $17 billion in revenue. In 22 last year, they did 31 and change billion in revenue, uh, almost break even. In 2023, the street has them earning money. Uh, on 37 billion, and in 2024, um, obviously uh, five billion dollars in free cash flow, which is a huge difference from right now, on 43.7 billion in revenue. The stock has a 60-something billion dollar market cap right now. It's hard for me to believe it'll be trading at these levels if those estimates are even close to what ends up happening. And I actually think Uber has more continuity and and uh, vision into their future uh, revenue and cash flow than most of the tech giants. There's like a constant of people traveling and going to work and ordering dinner. It's not all over the map. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a really important platform. I think the stock price is starting to kind of reflect that. 
Um, but if, if Dara delivers on those revenue expectations in the next two years, I think the stock will be substantially higher than where it is today. What do you make of what Brad Gerstner had to say yesterday, tweeted that, you know, essentially Uber needs to find the same sort of efficiency religion that Meta yeah. has. He's not going to write a letter, they as ha- some have asked him to do, but he thinks this is a moment for them to do that. A shout, shout to Brad. I think they have. They, they had a lot of non-core assets all over the world. They had stuff going on in China. They had joint ventures. They had automated driving, which they've since abandoned. They've had a lot of junky stuff that it made sense to experiment with when capital was free. Um, now capital has a cost, and I think they've done the right thing. Over the last two years, they have jettisoned a lot of non-core assets. They know what they are. They are three things right now. They are rides first. They are food and, and, and delivery second. The next thing is going to be freight. It's small. The jury's still out. If, if in those three businesses they can remain the category killer, I, again, I just think the platform is worth a lot more than where the market cap is today. I accept I could be wrong. It could, be, it could go lower. For, it's, it's fine. I'm an investor here. So this you own it, too, mm-hmm. right? In fact, it was, yes, we bought and it. And we never week. agree. I know, it's true. It's so I'm going to bring up something after we get done with this, but go ahead, please. <laughs> okay. But so this was actually one of my um, stock sector or stock so- summit picks. And with all of that in mind, but one thing that you didn't mention is with capital not being free, their competition is in a much harder spot than they are. Well, that's what Brad, point. that's, that's right. exactly what Gerstner's point was yesterday. Interesting. And that the, you know, the zero interest rates yeah. skewed the whole yeah. right. discussion about ten new competition coming along. That's right. right. So, to, and so yes. now they can actually they can actually use capital discipline, and they don't have their comp- competitors just eating their lunch with the free money. Great so point, it's Jenny. really, really like honed the business in. And Lyft it does have the scale. They do have the best management. They have this enormous free cash flow generation coming up that you mentioned. So I think I'm right there with you. All right. So we'll we'll see what they deliver in the morning. Uh, that's Uber, and the shares are getting a nice little pop. Uh, off the conversation there. Um, speaking of you guys never ag- agreeing. <laughs> He's taking me to Disney? JetBlue, right? <laughs> you brought up JetBlue. I don't, yeah. I don't remember what social media platform to get her you did it on. Yeah. Uh, but you said you gave her a lot of stuff about it when she picked it. Yeah, and I was J- wild disrespectful. You know what I actually said? <laughs> when you said you were buying JetBlue in the sixes, I'm like, yeah, but you're so smart. Why would you do that? That's exactly what you said. Can you imagine saying that? I remember it was the same context Listen. of you chiding me for buying Disney. Listen, I'm here, I'm here to apologize. Wow! Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know this was happening. Listen, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you for letting me say some of the things that I say to you. That is hilarious. You know know how much respect I have for you. It's America right now. Okay. And congrats on JetBlue. That stock's up 50% this year. I did did not know that that was planned, by the way. Um, I didn't either. Not planned. (laughs) You know what I'd really like, about. I thought about it. I said, you know what? I always give Jenny a hard time. She's such a good sport. She crushed it on the Disney call, crushed it on the JetBlue call. I was skeptical. Those stocks went right up in my face, and Jenny deserves uh, to Thanks, get her gosh. flowers. So. You know what I really want, though? I really what? want to buy you a hamburger. We'll yeah, still you still that. owe him that. <laughs> still um, that was really nice. So let's do this. Let's step away. We'll take a quick break. We think we're five minutes or so away from Fed Chair Powell. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. 
Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're just a couple minutes away, we think. Uh, you can see the Fed chair uh, looks right in the middle of your screen there. Uh, about to go on stage with David Rubenstein and give these highly anticipated remarks, the Economic Club of Washington. We're going to go there as soon as we do see them take their seats. Uh, in the meantime, let's try and get through a few other things. Number one, Zoom. I want to call your attention to shares of Zoom, which have popped in the last few minutes. There it is on your screen here. Zoom saying it's cutting 15 percent of its workforce, uh, as we've seen a number of tech companies announce those layoffs over the last you know, handful of weeks or so. And this company just facing the reality, perhaps, of life after the pandemic. Uh, and in some respects, you know, more people going back to work. And there's a, a look at that stock up 8 percent again, 15 percent of the workforce being cut at Zoom. Berkshire Hathaway, I want yeah. to talk to you about that. OK, about UBS. It says it's trading at a 20% discount. Yeah. What do you think of this? You've liked this and owned it for a long time now. Well, remember that um, Buffett and Munger kind of gave guidance as far as like when they would do a share buyback and they don't pay a dividend. So that's really the only way they would turn capital uh, to shareholders. They're not a big buyback story, but they, they talked about roughly 1.3 times tangible book or something. I don't know if that's still in force, but they have bought back a lot of stock over the last couple of years. And they probably could be buying here. So um, Berkshire's got two units worth discussing really quickly. Uh, Burlington Northern, which is the railroad, double-digit revenue growth year over year for six straight quarters going back to June of 21. Uh, same thing on the insurance side, six straight quarters of uh, double-digit uh, growth there. So this is, I think, an undervalued stock. I'm in it. I've been in it for a long time. I'll probably never sell it. All right, Jenny, Foot Locker initiated by today, BTIG, 55 bucks. Price target there. You own that, right? Yeah, and this is a real challenge for me because what this upgrade says is basically you've got a catalyst with this great new management team. They're taking the business very seriously. We added it a year and change ago at $27 a share when they announced that Nike was going to come off and that there was going to be huge, um, a huge share buyback and they jacked the dividend up. So we thought, oh, this is a management, a board that's very serious about, about returning to the shareholders. You see more of that now. But for me, managing this dividend income strategy that has an average yield of 5%, now I've got Foot Locker at 3.3. So even though everything is going really well, if it gets to this $55 price target, which I think it could and should, I'm going to be forced to sell it. Whereas if it was a growth strategy, I could just let it run forever. So that's where the sell discipline cuts both ways. Okay. Weiss, I want to run through something with you, but can we see the shot of the room again? Again, We, we think we're just moments away. Uh, there you go. In, in fact, the Fed chair sitting down, David Rubenstein. Let's go to the Economic Club okay, of Washington, D.C. So, as I think everybody knows, our special guest is the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, who has now completed five years as chairman, uh, as of two days ago, your fifth year, and now been on the Fed board for almost 12 years. So, Jay, um, thank you very much for being here. And why don't we start with an easy question? <laughs> so you made a speech last week commenting on the FOMC's decision to raise the Fed discount rate by um, a, a small amount, relatively speaking, 25 basis points. Some people would say that was small. Um, but at the time, it wasn't clear that the jobs report would be as strong as it turned out to be subsequently. Had you known that the jobs report was going to be as strong <laughs> Would you have done 25 basis points or something different? David, thank you for that question. And thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me here today. It's great to be here. Uh, so we don't get to play it that way, unfortunately. We have to. Uh, but I'll, so I'll, I'll take it this way. <clears throat> uh, so the message we were sending at the FOMC meeting last Wednesday was really that um, 
the disinflationary process, the process of getting inflation down, has begun, and it's begun in the goods sector, which is about a quarter of our economy. But it has a long way to go. These are the very early stages of disinflation. So the services sector really, except for housing services, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, is not really showing any, any disinflation yet. So our message really was this process is likely to take quite a bit of time. Uh, it's not going to be, uh, we don't think, smooth. It's probably going to be bumpy. And so we think that we're going to need to do further rate increases, as we said, and we, we think that we'll need to hold policy at a restrictive level for a period of time. Then comes the, uh, the, the uh, labor market report for January. And it's very strong. It's certainly stronger than anyone I know expected. <clears throat> and so, but, but I would say, we didn't expect it to be this strong, but I would say it, it kind of shows you why we think that this will be a, a, a process that takes a significant period of time. It, the, the labor market's extraordinarily strong. And by the way, it's good. It's a good thing that inflation has started to come down without it, that has not happened at the, at the cost of a strong labor market. So, and of course, since then, labor market, sorry, financial conditions have tightened significantly since then. So let me ask it another way. Um, <laughs> so by the way, when the, the numbers coming out, the jobs numbers, 519,000 jobs, does anybody call you up in the government and give you a little heads up, this is going to happen, or they never do that? So on, on some um, data, sometimes we get data just the night before, and it's only me, only me. And uh, so, but not on all pieces of data. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a very small amount of data, and we get it just, just the night before. For example, if we, if we were going to get a big piece of data in the middle of an FOMC meeting, as often happens on the day of an FOMC meeting, it will help me to, to know it the night before. Okay, so the markets, um, after your speech last week, the markets assumed that, therefore, there would probably be another 25 basis point increase in your next FOMC meeting. Um, was that a bad assumption by the markets? So, what, again, what we said at the meeting was, <laughs> was that uh, we, we believe that we anticipate, is what we said, that uh, ongoing rate increases will be appropriate. Uh, and the reason is we're trying to achieve a stance of policy that is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to 2% over time. And we don't think we've achieved that yet. So we said that, uh, and, I, and you know, now you see the labor market report, and I think, again, financial conditions are, are, are more well aligned with that than they were before. So the assumption when you made your speech was <clears throat> that probably the Fed might even consider uh, decreasing rates by the end of this year, and the markets no longer assume that. You think the markets are wrong? Well, uh, so let me say, these are, um, all of these numbers that we're throwing around here are conditional on incoming data and what happens. So we never say this is, this is what we think will happen. We, you know, we, we make a tentative forecast and then we let the data come in. For example, if the data were to continue to come in stronger than we expect, and we were to conclude that we needed to raise rates more than is priced into the markets or than we wrote down at our last four group of forecasts in December, then we would certainly do that. We would certainly raise rates more. Okay, so um, today, for people who aren't familiar with the FOMC, who is, actually is on the FOMC? So there, uh, the U.S. Central Bank consists of a board of governors here in Washington. There are seven governors. Those governors are nominated by the president and uh, confirmed by the Senate, and we serve terms that are, that are not synced up with the election cycle. So we're, we're independent. There are also 12 reserve banks around the country which have a degree of independence. And so, they, so each, each reserve bank is led by a president who works there full time. 
all 12 of them sit on the FOMC. So that's 19 people sit on the FOMC. So it's quite a large committee of which 12 vote at, in any given year. The Reserve Bank presidents vote on a rotating basis, except New York, which votes every year. So when you vote, um, do you vote at the beginning of an FOMC meeting and then just kind of have discussions afterwards, or do you wait to the very end and then you vote? No, we vote at the end. I mean, the, whole, the FOMC meeting process takes, you know, more than a full week. I'm talking to all of the participants, all, 19, all 18 other ones, and staff has sent around memos, and there's something called the Teal Book, which is the staff's assessment of the... Uh, you know, of the economy and, and international economy and monetary policy and all that. Then we, we have an extensive discussion on the morning of the first day about the economy. Everybody talks about that. On the second day, we talk about monetary policy, and then we vote on monetary policy at, at around noon on the second day. So does the chairman of the uh, Federal Reserve Board speak first and say, here's what I think, and, or does he wait until the end and say, well, thanks for what you think, but let me tell you what I think? What do you do? First so different, layout. different chairs have done it different ways. And so I, I tend, I've tended to do what my predecessor, immediate predecessor did, I think. Well, this is what I do. I, I speak last on the sort of the economic go around. So everyone else talks about what they think about the economy and in their district, for example, if they're Reserve Bank president. And I listen to all that. And then I give my comments at the end and I kind of sum up what people have said. And then I speak first on monetary policy. Okay, so you've said your inflation rate target is 2%, um, but why 2% and not 3%? 3% you know, could be tolerable, really. I mean, most, for most of organized history, 3% is considered, okay, why do you want 2%? So 2% is the global standard, and that is our objective, 2% as measured by the, the uh, PCE uh, index. And that's, just, that's not something we're looking at changing. That isn't going to change. It's, that's not going to change? Not going to change, no. But, okay, so you need to get to 2%, and your goal to get there is by what period of time would you like to get there? Well, we say, we say that we're using our tools to get there over time. If you look at our forecasts, we expect 2023 to be a year of significant declines in inflation, and it's actually our job to make sure that that's the case. But I would tell you that, uh, you know, with inflation, headline, headline uh, PCE inflation is running about 5%. This is on a 12-month basis. Core is running at 44 my guess is it will take certainly into not just this year, but next year to get down close to 2%. Okay, so 2% is firm. That's, you're not going to yes. get off that. Yes, Okay. So uh, the theory of raising interest rates um, is that it will decrease economic activity and increase unemployment. But you've been increasing interest rates for a while, and unemployment is now at a record low. So what's wrong with the theory? Why is unemployment not going higher? Well, the, the labor market is strong because the economy is strong. And uh, as I mentioned, it's a good thing that we've been able to see the beginnings of disinflation without seeing the, the labor market weaken. Um, it's just that uh, it, I, there's a lot of demand for workers. In fact, it, if, you, if you look at the supply of workers versus demand for workers, demand for, for U.S. workers is now more than 5 million greater than the available supply. And the available supply consists of people who were either working or actively looking for a job. So this, this, is, this was not the case before the pandemic. The pandemic really had a uh, significant, left a list, lasting mark so far on labor supply in the United States. The labor force particip participation rate came down, and there now is a, a shortage of workers, and it, it, feels, it almost feels more structural than cyclical. So that, that's, a, that's a significant issue. Now, you've resisted, I think, saying what <clears throat> unemployment rate would be acceptable to you, I think. But 
is there an unemployment rate that you think would moderate inflation such that you would tolerate unemployment at 4%, 5%, 6%? I guess I think about it this way. Um, you know, our, uh, we have two goals that Congress has assigned us, maximum employment and price stability. Price stability, as we've agreed, is 2% inflation. Maximum employment means if you want a job, you can get one. So right now, the labor market is at least at maximum employment. By many would say that it, that it is out of balance with more demand than there is supply. So what we're trying to do is get inflation down. We're not, we're not targeting uh, you know, a different uh, unemployment rate. We're, tr we're, trying, we're trying to use our tools to get inflation to come down over time. In hindsight, would you say that when COVID <clears throat> hit the economy and we injected $5 trillion of fiscal policy uh, into the economy uh, and the Fed did uh, quantitative easing and other related things, kept interest rates very low, would you say in hindsight that was a mistake or was the right policy at the time? So I think you have to go back to the decisions that were made in real time. And it was something nobody had ever seen. The global economy came to a virtual standstill. People were talking about depression. People were talking, and we, we didn't think, we, we had no idea when we would get um, uh, vaccines that worked. So Congress took very strong measures, and we took very strong measures. And you see where the economy is. You've got a very, very strong labor market, but you have high inflation. As I mentioned, we're at the beginning of getting that down. If you look around the world, though, at other countries, they're also experiencing high inflation, including countries that didn't, that didn't do as much as we did, either from a fiscal or monetary standpoint. So that, that tells you, though, that a big part of this inflation is actually related to the, 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 you know, the, the pandemic itself, the shutdown and then the reopening. That's a big part of it. Now, the quantitative <clears throat> easing program has increased the balance sheet, I guess, of the Fed. And what is your balance sheet now? I think it's $8.4 trillion. You must sound like you're pretty, you know. Uh, it <laughs> sounds like $8.4 trillion. Was, that was yesterday's number. Okay, all right, $8.4 trillion. Um, what would you like it to get down to over the next year or two? Is there some lower number? So we are in the process of shrinking the balance sheet actively, actually uh, passively, I should say. So what happens is uh, as Treasury securities on our balance sheet mature up to a cap, a monthly cap, we, we, that, the balance sheet shrinks in that amount. Same thing with mortgage-backed securities as they are prepaid or, right. so, so we, we, um, the balance sheet is shrinking. In terms of the target level of it, we haven't put a specific dollar number on it. The idea is we're in a regime of ample reserves. Reserves are uh, basically deposits at the, at the reserve banks. And when we get close to that level where we feel that we're, we're am, reserves are ample, kind of where we were before the pandemic, then we'll slow down and we'll sort of test where we are. And that, it, but it, it'll be a couple of years, we think, till we get to that level. The Fed does not uh, sell <coughs> securities. They waits for them to mature, and then you just uh, cash them in, right? You don't, you're not in the market selling securities that are not yet mature. Is that correct? That is correct. It, it's also correct, though, that we've said we would consider sales of mortgage-backed securities. But I will tell you, that's, that's not something that is... On the, on the list of active things, things being actively considered. So there's some people that are worried about the federal debt limit and that we might not <clears throat> be able to extend it on time. We have $31.4 trillion of debt. Are you a little worried about the debt limit not getting extended? So the debt limit is really something for the fiscal authorities to deal with. The Fed, our only role in this is that we're the, we're the fiscal agent of the Treasury Department. We're not a policymaker on that. And I will just say this. This, can, this really can only end one way, and that is with Congress raising the debt ceiling in a timely fashion so that the U.S. can pay all of its bills when and as due. That's what has to happen, and if that doesn't happen, no one should think that the Fed 
has the ability to shield the financial markets or the economy from the consequences of, of moving too slow. So you don't have any program in place ready to go if, in fact, the debt limit isn't passed in time? This is something that Congress has to deal with. And the, the, the so-called trillion-dollar gold coin solution is not one you're in favor of, I guess. I, as I said, this ends in only one way, okay. and that way is Congress voting to raise the debt ceiling so that the U.S. can pay all of our bills. Okay. In when terms do. of consultation, um, do you consult regularly with the Treasury Secretary or the head of the National Economic Council or the President of the United States? How do you kind of relate to the administration? For a long, long time, you know, 60 or 70 years, there, I think there's been a weekly breakfast or lunch with the Treasury Secretary and the Fed Chair. And that's what I've had with, with uh, Treasury Secretaries that I've had as Fed Chair. I've also had I have regular or call it, call it irregular lunches with the head of the NEC. We also have regular, regularly scheduled lunches with the Council of Economic Advisors. And that's, that's really the, that's the, that's the institutional structure of our, of our contacts with the administration. So in the way the Fed works today, if you could reconstruct the operations of the Fed, you know, would you change the legislation anyway? Would you think the Fed operates in a, in a way that's as efficient as you can realistically operate? We're, we're not looking for any changes to the Federal Reserve Act. I mean, I think it, it does work. The, the, the structure that I discussed earlier where you've got the 12 Reserve Bank pr presidents coming in, what that assures really it institutionalizes diversity of thought. So we get different people coming in who've got different backgrounds, different careers, and they, and they think different ways. And I think that's enormously beneficial to our decision-making process. So there has been discussion recently about the Fed, some <coughs> Fed members, Fed board presidents, selling their securities and maybe not doing everything they were supposed to do in terms of disclosing it. What have you done to fix that process? We've put a new system and a new set of rules in place, <coughs> which I think are best in class for a public institution like the Fed. And, uh, you know, the, the innovations were that, that if someone wants to sell something that they own or buy something, they have to clear that in advance with, with staff at the Board of Governors, and then you've got to wait 45 days for that to execute. Also, you, you can't own individual stocks, and they're, they're, you, can only do these, you can only authorize these transactions or execute them during specific times. Um, and it, you know, it's it's a and we, we just of course all of these are, are disclosed. If if your if your idea is to go to trade things, buy and sell them because you think you know uh, you think this stock is cheap and that kind of thing, that's just not something that will work. So what Fed. is the salary of the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board? It's um, it's around one hundred and ninety thousand dollars, I believe. Okay, so you you live on the one hundred ninety thousand dollars. If you need to sell something, what do you do? You have to clear it for forty five days. Or? That's right. We, we've, you know, to, if we have family expenses that, if we have them, that exceed if, my salary, then we have to sell an asset. You think that's a fair salary for the job, or? I do, yes. No. Okay. So today, um, how do you coordinate with uh, central banks, let's say in England or Japan or, or China? Do you have regular conversations with them about what they're doing? We do, you know, and I, I meet six times a year in Switzerland with the heads of all the of many, many central banks, you know, even the, even the small and medium-sized ones at the, at, in Basel at the Bank for International Settlements. In addition, among the major central banks, I have regular dialogues going with, with most of them. And so we, what we're talking, though, about is really what's happening in the economy and how are you thinking about policy and that kind of thing. It's very important that, that we keep those discussions going because particularly in a crisis, you're going to need to know each other and you're going to need to know, you're going to be able to trust each other. And do you think the U.S. economy is pretty much in control of its own inflation rate? Or are there 
uh, events outside the United States, like what China is doing or the Ukraine war that are affecting inflation and make you nervous about where inflation might be going? We have the tools, the Fed has the tools to achieve our 2% goal over time. Uh, but uh, inflation in the United States is, of course, very closely related to things that happen here, including the balance between supply and demand. It's also affected by, for example, commodity prices that are really set on the global markets. You know, oil and many agricultural commodities are, are priced globally. So there, there are certainly, it's an integrated global economy and global markets, and we, you know, we are part of that. So you get data from all the various government agencies, but do you ever use anecdotal things like you go to the supermarket and you see <clears> prices <throat> are high and you say this price is high? Or how do you get, do you ever get anecdotal things or people ever call you up or friends and say, by the way, you should do this or that? Do you ever get that kind of information or do you only get it from the government reports? I mostly get uh, data, but I will say the, 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 I, I do believe that anecdotal information is very useful. And one of the things the reserve banks are great at is all 12 of them have big operations where they talk to businesses and nonprofits, universities, every sector of the, of the country and the economy. And they bring that back to the FOMC meetings and they talk about what they're seeing. Because often, you know, staring at data is, is great, but you need, to, you need to have a story. And, and, and I think hearing the stories that people tell, it does help me to sort of, you know, assess what's going on out there. So as the chairman of the Federal Reserve is obviously an important job, how do you reduce the stress level you have? I mean, uh, you can't be on watching economic numbers all the time. So what do you do to relieve the stress other than interviews like this? <laughs> you know, the usual things. I, uh, I read uh, pretty light fiction, detective and spy fiction. I exercise as much as I can. As you know, I, I like to ride my bike. Is I that, play the guitar, play music. Is that safe riding a bike? Um, you know, dangerous and it's it's safe. It, sorry, it's safe if you stay on the bike and, okay. <laughs> and you're good at that. That's what I try to and do. You still play the guitar, or you're still I do, I do. Yeah, your hair is awfully short for playing the guitar. Don't you need longer hair? Was yes. your hair longer when you were younger? And grayer. It's too gray too. So. Okay. So let me ask you uh, about um, the the issue of um, what it's like to be chairman of the Fed. You 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 can't go have you know, regular friendship kind of dinners or meetings, can you, people, people treat you much differently, I assume, than they used to, right? When you go to a restaurant, are people listening to what you're saying or something like that? I, I have always thought that my jokes were funny, David. I, <laughs> but uh, no, so it, yes, it, it's, um, I, I've never been a public figure before like this, and it's very different, but um, you know, it's, it's a great honor to serve. Uh, but yeah, if you, when you go in public places, you have to be very careful about it. Oh, yeah. And um, does do? the president of the United States ever call you with any advice or you don't really see, he does, did President Trump ever call you or President Biden ever call you or? Well, I, I think it's a matter of public record that President Trump did used to call me from time to time. Okay. <laughs> what did he call you? <laughs> um, no, I, I've, I haven't had that kind of, uh, I haven't gotten any calls from, uh, from President Biden. Okay, so the biggest challenge you have now is being able to keep a straight face, not telling people what you're gonna do in the future, and look at the data, and then come up with the right solution, right? That's mostly it. I, I think the biggest challenge we face at the Fed is completing the process of getting inflation down to 2%. And what, what I wanna point out is that the, we're seeing disinflation in the goods sector. We're, we're go, we expect to see it in the housing services sector. 
and that's that's these are the three parts of the of the core PCE inflation index that we look at. There's 56% of the economy, which is the rest of the services sector. It's the biggest part, obviously. And we're not seeing disinflation there yet. And that's going to take some time. And I just, we, we need to be patient. And we think we're going to need to keep rates at a restrictive level for, you know, for a period of time before that comes down. So when you made your speech the other day, when you talked about the Fed discount rate, you used the word disinflation 11 times. Not that I'm counting, but 11 times. So you were saying that disinflation is beginning to appear. Would you use that word 11 times again today after the jobs report, or you would be less inclined to use that word so much? I, I might use the, the I might say, I, I would certainly use the word disinflation, yes, which means declining inflation, and I, I would call it declining inflation too for. And uh, today, what about the, uh, the debt, total debt of the United States, which produces some inflation? 31.4, leaving aside the debt limit, are you worried about the total indebtedness in the United States producing inflation, or you don't think that's a big problem? Yeah, it's not the level of debt. It, I, I would say, the thing I'd say about the level of debt is really, it's not, first of all, it's not the Fed's job, but I would say that we, we've, we're on an unsustainable fiscal path at the federal government level. That has been the case for some time, and it's something we will have to deal with, and it's better to deal with it sooner rather than later. Now, many of your predecessors were economists. You were trained as a lawyer. Um, so um, they spoke in what I call Fed speak, which is to say incomprehensible kind of <laughs> economic uh, language, which was uh, done intentionally, I think, sometimes they would say. So you tend to speak in English. Um, is that a, been a, a, a plus, you'd say, when you're dealing with members of Congress, they can understand what you're saying? I like to think so. You know, I've, I've made it a real priority to... Um, to engage a lot with Congress. In, in our system of government, unlike the parliamentary system, our accountability is to the legislature. It's to Senate and the House, and particularly the two oversight committees, Senate Banking and House Financial Services. And I, I think it's very important that we respect that and explain what we're doing and listen to their concerns and, and share with them how we're thinking about things. And I think they appreciate that. And, but that is, you know, we have this precious independence. We can't be removed from office. We serve these long terms. The other side of that has to be accountability. And the, the way for us to get accountability is to be as transparent as possible and try to reach, you know, the people of the United States through their elected representatives. So this is a very high priority, and, and we're going to keep doing it. So when you testify in front of Congress, how much time does it take to prepare for that? Is that a one-hour preparation session, or is it a one-day session, or a one-week session? You know, they're supposed to, these are supposed to be monetary policy hearings under the Humphrey-Hawkins Act, and they're actually on any, anything that's any political issue. So you, you're, it's, it's quite extensive. You have to prepare for everything that the Fed is involved in and many things that the Fed is not involved in. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a lot of preparation. So when you get questions from some members, do you have to bite your tongue and say, why are you asking a question like that, or you never have that problem? That never happens. Never happens. Okay. 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 All right. Well, good. Um, so today, uh, as you look at um, the country's economy, what is the biggest worry you have about inflation? Is it just that um, the fiscal policy is not completely under control? We have exogenous events outside. What is your biggest worry about inflation today? Well, it's, it's uh, kind of what I was saying earlier, which is um, we're just at the beginning of this process, right? Goods inflation. So we need that process to continue. Goods the whole thing began, the whole inflation began with people not being able to buy services, instead buying goods, and then global supply chains collapsing. And so you couldn't get goods, and prices of goods went up, and that's where it started. But that is now 
starting to get better as supply chains are, are, are improving and as people are rotating their purchases back to services. You move on, though. We're not seeing it yet in housing services, which is either rent or, or the ownership, the, the imputed costs of house ownership. But we expect to see that. So we need that to happen. That's another big part of the economy. It's got to come. It should come in the second half of this year. Then the biggest piece of it, and what I worry about the most, is when are we going to see disinfl disinflation or re de declining inflation in core services X housing? So that's what I worry about. The, the last thing I worry about <clears throat> is just another exogenous event. It's a risky world out there. Uh, you know, with the war in Ukraine and the reopening of China, and you know, we there there those are things that can affect our economy and the path of inflation. Right. So the balloon was not your worry, though. You don't care about the balloon. It's not not within our ambit. Okay. So today, um, the Federal Reserve gets data from all over the country, and um, are you convinced that you get the best data? You have the best data collection methods, uh, or do you think it's not as uh, modern as what Wall Street gets? We, so most of the data that we get are just the same. You know, we don't collect the data on unemployment or inflation or most things. So and most of that's just government data, and a lot of that's, for example, very high quality. The labor market data is very high quality. We, what we get, which I think is better and different from what everybody else gets, is what I mentioned earlier, and that is the reserve banks putting together the, the, um, yeah, the beige, no, not the beige book, the um, beige book. Yeah, the beige book, putting together the beige book and also coming in and, and, and you know, sharing the anecdotes and you know, what they're hearing, what's happening with the, each district is different. You have agricultural districts, districts and energy districts. And so that I think, I think our anecdotal, but also just the hall of information we get through that, through that network is, is I, don't, I don't think anybody else has that. So do you consult regularly with some of your predecessors? I mean, obviously one is Secretary of the Treasury now, but uh, Ben Bernanke, for example, or? I do. I, I talk to uh, former Chairman Bernanke. I talk to, you know, uh, Secretary Yellen. I still talk to Alan Greenspan now and again. And um, when you're dealing with, this, with the, your colleagues on the Fed board and you disagree with them, do you say, look, I'm the chairman of the Fed. I am the person who has to make the final decision and this is what we should do? Or you don't quite do it that way? It's a, it's a process of reaching uh, agreement. And um, I hear what people have to say, and I tell them what I think, and then I'm the one who has to bring a proposal in front of the full committee, not just the board, but in front of the full committee on monetary policy. And it works. You know, we have to reach an agreement, and, uh, you know, we get to a place. I, I, I think you can tell today we are blessed with a diversity of perspectives on the FOMC with 19 people. Of course we are. But you, you have one thing that unites all of us, and that is a very strong commitment to getting inflation down. So in some parts of Washington, people say, if you give me this, I'll give you that. I'll trade this for that. You never do that at the Fed when you're coming up with a decision. I'll do what you want if you do what I want. That doesn't happen ever? Not really, no. Oh, no. okay. Like you mean a better office or something like that? Uh, well, just, uh, you know, I'll say what you want me to say if you say what I want you to say or something. And that never happens, right? No, no, it doesn't happen. I mean... And when you want to talk to members of the, F, of the board, of uh, the Federal Reserve Board, do you go to their office or do they come to your office? I like to do both. Oh. I mean, I, I really don't like to sit in my office all day and, and have, just have people come to see me. I like to go barge in on people. And, you know, I think it's much better to get up and walk around and, and see people. But the Fed has been pretty good at uh, avoiding leaks of its decisions. Uh, how do you do that? Because most people in Washington are not so good at that. How do you 
avoid leaks. We, we do have, confident. you know, we've got very strict rules around confidentiality, particularly around the written materials that we have. You know, we, we publish these things internally for, for the FOMC meeting, the memos and the Teal book and all that. Um, but the, the other thing to remember, though, is, you know, we're not trying to hide our decisions from the public. We actually, in, in, the modern, in modern monetary policy, we want the public to understand how we think, how we're thinking, and, and you know, if markets really understand how you're thinking and a new, a new piece of data comes in, the markets will go, well, they're going to do this. And it, it sort of happens organically. And that happened all last year. As we were, you know, talking about raising rates, the market priced in rate increases long before we actually enacted them. So it's not, we want to be transparent. We're not looking to surprise markets with these decisions. But from the time that you make your decision on the FOMC, whatever time it is during the day, and is it, you, your press conference at 2 o'clock or something like that? 2.30. 2.30. Yeah. So your decision is made by 2 o'clock or whenever it is or something like that. So you got a half hour, but you have to avoid leaks during that half hour because that's very market-sensitive information. How do you make sure nobody is calling their spouse and saying, guess what we're going to do? Well, we, you know, we, people take this very seriously. None of that happens. You know, you're, I mean, you're, you're taking your professional life in your hands if you do something like that. And I think people have a sense of self-preservation. So they're, you know, people are very careful about, about this information. There is a period of a couple of hours after the meeting and until we announce the decision. But we actually, we announced the decision at 2. The press conference is at 2.30. Okay, so. so I think you know, the, it's a fairly small group of senior staff and policymakers that, that kind of know what happened and what we're going to say. And I, I just think everybody understands that, that you've just got to be really careful with that. To go back to the jobs discussion, if next month you had another 519,000 jobs created, net jobs. Would that be good or bad from your point of view? Have we a lot of people working, but maybe producing more inflation? So the, we, we, don't, we don't have the luxury of thinking about good or bad. It just is what it is. So, but I, I would say, again, we, most, most analysts, most economists would say that to get inflation down from high levels that we've had, if you look at history, there is some softening in labor market conditions that goes along with that. And that is still you know, very possible and indeed likely here, some softening in labor market conditions. However, this cycle is different from other cycles because of where it came from, and it's just confounded all, all sorts of attempts to predict what it would do. So it is good that we have seen very strong labor market, but at the same time, we're seeing wages moderating. Wages are still very, wage increases are still very high, but wage increases have come down to a level that is closer to what would be sustainable, still well above what would be sustainable with 2% inflation. And same thing with inflation. In, in, inflation is starting to come down and the labor market hasn't softened. We do expect that it will soften, um, but you know, it will do what it will do. Our job is to get inflation down to 2% and preserve maximum employment. So when the FOMC meets, uh, as it does regularly, <clears throat> eight, eight times a year? Yes. Eight, eight times. You pretty much know how the decision is going to come out before you actually get together because you've been talking to each other? Or does the meeting of the FOMC change minds in ways that you might not have expected before the meeting started? It depends on the meeting. You know, I, do, I talk to each of the 18 other participants at least once, and we go through everything. What, you know, what's your analysis of the economy? How are you thinking about monetary policy? How are you thinking about the path forward and all of that? So... Um, in some, some meetings, it, it, I will say, some of the time, you get into a discussion at the meeting which suggests that maybe you should communicate differently. And then we'll think about that. And we might actually 
take a break in the middle of the meeting and then go off with a smaller group and think about that and come back and make changes. Sometimes, though, everything plays out as expected. And when you're having these FOMC meetings, I assume somebody sweeps the room to make sure there's no bugs and anything. Yes, like all that. So yeah. no leaks. No. <clears throat> okay. And today, um, as you look forward, as we are going forward for the next remainder of this year, your basic view would be you'd be happy if the inflation rate were to get down by the end of the year to 2% may be unrealistic, but your core inflation now or overall inflation you think is about 4 4 4.5%, something like that, or what would you say it is? It's, it's in that range. There are different measures. Okay. Yes, we, we expect you know, significant progress on inflation this year. And again, it's our job to produce it. And, and I want to I say again, you know, we, put, we throw these numbers around, but the reality is we're going to react to the data. So if we continue to get, for example, strong labor market uh, reports or higher, higher uh, inflation reports, it may well be the case that we have to do more and raise hikes more than is priced in. So if I wanted to go get a mortgage on a house I was going to buy, for example, uh, you would say I'm not going to be any better off waiting to next year than now because rates aren't going to come down that much at the beginning of next year, so I might as well get the house now, mortgage. So I, say surprisingly enough, I get a lot of requests for advice on those right. kind of things. And you don't give any? And I, I, but I really can't. Okay. I, can't, I really can't respond. So, uh, okay, so <laughs> on the whole, to summarize where you are, you're basically saying that the jobs data was, that came out was a little bit surprising, but in the end, you're... Taking, you've taken into account, and you're pretty comfortable with the guidance you gave last time, and you're not prepared to give anything that's completely different guidance than you gave last week. Well, I mean, this is a world in which we've had the the inflate, sorry, the the, un, the, right. the the labor market report, and I think that does, I think it, it underscores the message that I was sending at the at the um, press conference and in the meeting that we have a significant road ahead to get inflation down to 2%. And, and I, I think there's been an expectation that it'll, that it'll go away quickly uh, and painlessly. And I, I don't think that's at all guaranteed. That's not the base case. The base case is it will t for me is that it will take some time and we'll have to do more rate increases and then we'll have to look around and see whether we've done enough. Okay, and, and 2% is the rate we had for the last 25 years before inflation came along. But prior to that, for most of U.S. history, we were higher than 2%. Is it that 2% is, we're now so used to 2% after 25 years of it that you think that's the appropriate level? So for, we went through this long period where inflation was, was really anchored around 2%. And we, we think that, and, and you know, economists think that that's because people start to expect 2% inflation. And inflation, it's in, in a way, if, people, if everyone expects that prices are going to go up, prices and wages are going to go up 2% per year, then plus productivity in the case of wages, then it will. That's what will happen. Having, that, having price stability, real price stability for an extended period of time is just enormously beneficial to the public because you can then, on the back of that, you can build a very strong labor market, as we had. We had a labor market with really 3.5% unemployment in 2018 and 19. And we had inflation running, you know, just barely getting to 2%. Wages moving up the most for people at the lower end of the, of the spectrum. And so this was a, we, we all want to get back to that place, but 
the, the bedrock of the whole thing is to get inflation under control. The unemployment rate hasn't come down as much as people are going up, as much as people thought. In part, some people say because we don't have as many immigrants coming to the country, legal immigrants coming in, taking some of the jobs they otherwise would take. Do you think immigration is an issue in terms of giving us more labor uh, uh, workers, or do you think that's not a factor? So it, just as a matter of arithmetic, it was a factor because there was very little migration across borders during the pandemic. Uh, and that was part of, of what was happening, particularly in, in certain sectors like the agricultural sector and food service and things like that, where, where there just weren't the people. However, just, just very recently here, the, the immigration data have turned up again. And so, and I think that may, may, may be part of why people are feeling somewhat less pressure in the labor market to find workers. This is an issue not for the Fed, though. This is, immigration is obviously a political issue. We do not seek to be a player on this. But it's just a fact, though, that, that um, you know, right now the United States has, has fewer available workers than it has jobs plus job openings. And when you increase interest rates, the traditional effect is to increase the value of the dollar versus other currencies. Uh, do you have any concern about the value of the dollar going up too much, or that's not something you comment on? So the, the, actually the uh, responsibility for the, for the exchange rate is really rests with the Treasury Department and the administration, not with us. Of course, that's another... That's another financial variable that goes into every economic model, but we don't, we don't look at it as something that we're working on. All right. Well, I think I haven't been able to get you to say anything you didn't want to say. Um, so, um, you know, I would say, Jay, I, I've known you a long time. I think you've done a great job uh, in a difficult situation. I appreciate your service to the country at $180,000 a year or whatever the salary is, something like that. So thanks very much for being here, and thank you for your service. Thank you, David. Great to see you. Thank you. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.